Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Pre-submission, more specifically an FDA pre-submission. How can you use this to your benefit during your efforts to bring new medical devices to market? On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I chat with Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences, and we talk about the pre-submission and how this can be a useful vehicle and tool to aid you in your quest to bring a new product to market. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.guru and the host, as always, John Spear. Familiar guest has joined us again today. I want to welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. I want to welcome Mike Drews. Mike is with Vascular Sciences. As you probably know by now, Mike is a rock star in the medical device industry, so much so that he has FDA calling him for for guidance and direction. He has Health Canada helping, calling for his help as well, as well as medical device companies all over. And Mike, I don't know where we're talking to you from today, but I know you're traveling like crazy, going from coast to coast and probably not sleeping and all that sorts of things, all for the sake of trying to help medical companies get safer products to market. Well, that's right, John. Thank you for that very kind introduction. And it's always <laughs> great to, to talk with you and your, and your audience. So thanks again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mike, I think the last time we, we had a session, we, we teased the, the, today's topic. And, and I know it's something that, you know, I, I'll say I've, I've read a little bit about this topic. There's not a lot written, actually, uh, out on this topic. But I can tell you some of the best content that I've read on this is from you. And the topic today is the pre-submission. And specifically, we're going to get into the power of the pre-submission process and going beyond the guidance. Well, thanks, John. That's, that's, it, it, it is a very important topic. Just to, to sort of set the stage for you and your audience, here's an interesting statistic I thought I would share with you. And that is 70 to 75% of 510K and PMA submissions made to FDA, 70 to 75% of them are rejected first time out of the box. I hear a lot of my regulatory colleagues, they say their goal is to get their 510K cleared or their PMA approved. Quite frankly, John, that's never been my goal because anybody can do that. My goal is to get my 510K cleared or my uh, PMA approved or my de novo or whatever it is. Ideally, the first time out of the box, if I can, if I can, with the minimum number of ping pongs of Q&A going back and forth. Right. So am I successful 100% of the time? No, uh, but I can tell you I'm in the 20 to 25%, not in the 70 to 75%. Nice. And John, just out of curiosity, do you think uh, what, what do you think is the most common reason that uh, FDA makes so many rejections? As an engineer, what would you call the root cause to that? <laughs> well, if I were a, a, to guess... One of the things that, that I see so often is indications for use and, and maybe more specifically that within a submission itself, the indications for use statement 
is not the same throughout the the entire submission. Well, that's a great guess, John, and that does happen actually quite a bit. Uh, and we can we can certainly get into uh, an example or two of that if you'd like. But thinking in more uh, sort of a root cause, in other words, that that I think is just a symptom. Sure, sure, yeah, sure. More deep kind of a problem. I think, John, quite frankly, the reason why so many submissions are rejected, and not just submissions, but so many uh, products are delayed, so many warning letters are uh, generated for 83s, sometimes even recalls, they all have exactly the same root cause, and that is communication, or the lack thereof. And one thing I've learned in being married is I can say one thing and my wife can hear something completely different. Right. And as a, you know, as a, as a fellow man, I mean, but most people don't appreciate that exactly the same thing happens between the company and the FDA. And yeah. The company can say or write one thing and the FDA can hear something completely different. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. And, and I, um, I remember back to my first 510K experience many, many, many years ago. And that was a, a different time, I think. It was a different era from an FDA industry perspective. And not that FDA and industry are holding hands walking down the street today, but let's just say those were times where there was a lot, it was a lot more of a contentious relationship. And, and I'm talking about the day where uh, back in, in this time where you would put together a 510K submission, you would send it to the FDA. You wouldn't have any communication with FDA ahead of time. And you wouldn't have any communication with the FDA during the review process. Instead, you would cross your fingers and you would wait. And usually that meant that you would wait a couple of months and then you would get in the mail a list of questions, <laughs> questions about your submission. And then, like you said, you played this game of ping pong back and forth. Well, they asked this. I wonder what they mean. So let's try to answer it this way. And you send your response and back and forth and back and forth. Then. You know, I, I say that was from from times in the past, but I suspect there's probably, based on your statistic, there's probably still a fair number of companies that are keeping that style and approach with their 510k submissions. Well, regrettably, John, you're exactly right. In fact, several of the companies that I work with, uh, up until working with me, of course, their policy is sometimes not to have any communication with FDA prior to the submission. And in a few cases... Uh, some companies that I've worked with, the only form of communication they have with the FDA is through the submission. I personally think that you're taking on a huge regulatory risk in that sense. You're, you're just setting yourself up for right. failure. In this context, failure meaning getting questions back on your submission. Right. Um, as you know, John, it's become the norm for companies to uh, make a submission to the FDA and for the FDA to come back to them with questions. I personally think, as a professional in this industry for nearly 25 years, that's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. We are essentially treating the FDA as our elementary school teacher. In other words, here's our homework assignment where you <laughs> give us mark a it up and, and give <laughs> yeah. it back to us. And yeah. that is, in my opinion, not the way this game is supposed to be played. As you know, John, I set the bar very high. Sure. If I get any question back on a submission, I view that as a failure. 
pure and simple 100% failure because I work really hard to try to get all the questions answered in advance long before the submission goes in such that when the submission goes in, uh, assuming that the data shows what I'm going to sh- what what I say it's going to show, then now it's just a matter of everybody you know fixing their sig- their signatures and it works through the system and so on and we're done. Right. But unfortunately, that's not the the standard practice today. Right. Right. Well, and and I and I think that really leads us into the, our topic real really well. I mean, it's a good kind of a good foundation. And let's so let's dive into this pre-submission topic because in your your context of communication being key to success in any submission process, 510K, PMA, or other, I see the, the pre-submission becoming more and more a vehicle, so to speak, that industry is embracing, but more importantly, I think FDA is embracing and encouraging as a potential vehicle to communicate between FDA and industry. That's correct, John. It is uh, what, one of the ramifications of the pre-submission guidance that came out now about two years ago is that it has increased the popularity of the program and more companies are taking advantage of this, which is a good thing. On the downside, it is now creating a little more of a, of a delay, a little more of a backlog in terms of meetings, but you know that's, uh, that, that, that's the nature of the game. But let me be clear, uh, some of us, myself included, and I suspect you as well, uh, we've been communicating like this with the FDA for a very long time. Uh, as a matter of fact, I sometimes say, I don't need any regulation or guidance, including the precept guidance, to tell me when right. to communicate with FDA. Right. I will communicate them with them when I think I need to. And by the way, I communicate with them a heck of a lot more frequently than any regulation would ever uh, require me to do so. Yeah, but but you're the you're you're Mike Drews. You, you uh, consult with the FDA. So. No, that's that, that's very flattering, John. But but, but I, I mean, mean that, I, you can understand I, how somebody can come with that perception, right? Like like the average startup company, for example, or or med device company that's been doing things a certain way for a certain period of time. Yeah, you know, what what can they do to engage in the FDA? I mean, is it as simple as picking up the phone and calling, or is there an? It's certainly, you know, you know, it certainly can be. And uh, listen, you're, again, your your words are certainly flattering, but I want everybody to understand. What remember one thing: FDA works for us, not the other way around. We pay their salaries, both in terms of taxpayers as well as in terms of user fees from our industry. So they, you know, that, that they work for us. And as a result, we have a certain expectation that they should be, you know, responsive and so on. They don't necessarily have to agree with us all the time. In fact, they should not agree with us all the time. But they do work for us. And everybody, no matter what sort of a position you're in, uh, should feel that. Uh, that they can have some sort of a relationship with the agency. And the pre-submission process, or the pre-sub as it's now uh, uh, often called, is just one form of communication with that we can have with the agency. There are other forms which uh, we won't get into in, in our discussion today, sure. but, the, but the pre-sub is just one. And if your audience is not familiar, uh, FDA did put out a, a guidance on the pre-sub process about two years ago. Yeah. We can certainly provide a link from yeah, uh, I'll include the link. I'll, I'll include a link to that guidance and and the the text that that accompanies this podcast for sure. Because I mean, it's you know, as with any guidance, I suppose uh, uh, some are better than others. I mean, that pre sub guidance. I'm just being giving you my opinion. I mean, it's okay. It does a pretty good job of of identifying the the expected contents for a pre-submission. And I think that's good. And I know you and I have had a, a sidebar conversation about one of those sections of, of a pre-sub that I expect that we'll get into here in a moment. But um, 
talk a little bit more about when I, I, I should uh, I could use a pre-sub, but you know when would that be valuable? Is it anytime I have something that's on my mind, or you know when is this vehicle the, the best time to drive? Well, that's a great question, John. One of the most common questions that I get from companies, uh, especially uh, uh, engineers, and I know that your audience is primarily an engineering audience, is how early in the development process right. should we uh, approach the FDA? And here's my simple response to that. We should, we should go to the FDA as soon as we possibly can. Uh, but there's an important caveat that caveat to that, and that is as soon as we're ready. In other words, I don't want to go one day sooner. We need to be able to go to FDA with a very well thought out development plan. Here's our medical device. This is the way that it works. This is our draft labeling. Right. This is the testing that we've done thus far. This is the testing that we're planning on doing next, and so on and so on. So we have to be able to have a well thought out uh, a plan that we can articulate, and most importantly, that we can defend it. Mm -hmm. Because FDA's job, whether some people want to admit it or not, is to challenge us literally to challenge us on everything. If we walk into the FDA and say the sky is blue, that's our claim. Right. FDA's job is to say, prove it. Right. So we need to be able to to defend our, our, our plan. And I personally, this is my approach, I like to begin with what makes sense from an engineering and a biology perspective uh, and then consider the regulation much later on. Unfortunately, in this industry, it doesn't usually happen that way. Usually people begin with the regulation and then they sort of spin the engineering, the biology to, to fit the regulation. Right. In my, in my opinion, that's a mistake. There's an there's an adage that we use in medicine frequently: the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Right. Well, the medical device equivalent of that is we designed the medical device perfectly, yet the patient died anyway. The regulatory equivalent of that is we've we followed the regulation perfectly. Mm -hmm. That is, we did all that FDA or Health Canada, whoever asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. Unfortunately, these things happen more frequently than some people might like to think. Of course, these things never happen in the companies that your audience. <laughs> Oh, they only work, and, and they never happen to the companies that you and I help. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> only other, the other companies. Well, but uh, I, I think that's a really important point, and, and and I'll say it in a slightly different way. It's really about focusing on the, the indications for use. It's really about focusing on the clinical need. I mean, I know it seems so basic to say it that way, but but uh, you're right. So many companies do lose sight of that from time to time, and you know the. When I talk to companies about pre-sub, or I talk to them about five ten kids, or just product development in general, it's like, what are your indications for use? What are you trying to do? What problem are you trying to solve? And keep bringing them back to that, because if you're not solving that problem, you're missing the point. You're exactly right, John. And again, because this is an engineering audience, let me give you a quick example. What you're describing here, uh, which really could be the topic of another conversation perhaps in the future, is what I call high-level labeling the indications for use, the intended use, your label claims, and so on. Now, when you look at the overall submission, uh, the high-level labeling, like the indications for use, if FDA is doing their job, and believe me, they don't always, but if the FDA is doing their job, that is one part of the submission that is parsed by FDA word for word, syllable for syllable, letter for letter. Uh, other parts of the submission, I'm thoroughly convinced as a matter of fact, I have actual proof that never get that get never get read. But the the high level labeling, 
the indications for use, for example, that's something that they really scrutinize. So I was in, uh, in California recently working with a, a small medical device company who's developing a medical device. And at the same time they were developing the device, they were designing the device, I was designing five or six different intended use and indication for use statements, all for exactly the same device. And what we did was we presented those five or six different high-level labeling statements to the senior management of the company. And I did a regulatory burden assessment and a regulatory risk assessment on each one. And we had a discussion with the company. If you want to say this about your device, this is what you're going to have to do. If you want to say that about your device, that's what you're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. So to me, as an engineer, John, design is design. Whether I'm designing a physical medical device, whether I'm designing a clinical trial, whether I'm designing, uh, in this case, high-level labeling uh, or, or a regulatory submission, design is design. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, a good point that, you know, understanding a little bit more about what a pre-submission can be used for, right? We talk about it being a vehicle to communicate with the FDA. It's probably good to explain a little bit more about how and when to use that. I mean, we talked about kind of the timing, what should you, where should you be sort of in the context of your development efforts of your device. And, you know, it should be a little bit more just to kind of paraphrase a bit of what you said, but a little bit further along than just a cocktail napkin sketch and prior to going to market for sure. But somewhere in the middle, so to speak. But there are other means to, to use this pre-submission vehicle. I mean, it's not just about getting guidance and direction on a 510K, although I suspect that's probably the most common use. What are some other ways that that pre-submission, that communication piece can be useful to a company? Well, that's a terrific question. Let me use as an example what we just started to talking talk about in terms of the high-level labeling. So the pre-sub process is often what I will use to introduce the FDA to my high-level labeling. And I've described this, the whole uh, relationship between the company and the FDA as a poker game, as a chess match in every sense of the word. Uh, and, and just because somebody understands the rules of poker doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good poker player. And it certainly doesn't mean they're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can legal, of course. I don't want to be wearing any large jumpsuits in order to, to win that game. So the pre-sub process is often what that I will introduce to the FDA my high-level labeling statement, like, for example, my indications for use. But because I view everything here as a negotiation, I will start out by going to the FDA with a very broad sort of an indication for use statement. The FDA might come back and say, nice try, Mike, but try again. So then I will offer up another one and say, okay, you don't like this one, you know, how about this one? This is a, this is a negotiation. So using that, me that poker metaphor, uh, when I go into the FDA, I have three sets of cards in my pocket. The first set of cards are cards that I put down prophylactically without anybody even asking. Uh, that might be my first indication for use statement. The second set of cards I will keep in my pocket and I will only play them if I, if I have to. So I will have like a backup or a backup, backup uh, indication for use statement. I will have things that I can negotiate. And then a third set of cards that I can't play even if I wanted to because perhaps the company doesn't have the resources to do it, like an extensive clinical trial or the technology doesn't exist or, or something like that. Right, so right. I, I use the pre-sub process to introduce the FDA to these things 
uh, and to make sure that we get into uh, an agreement, uh, again, long before the submission goes in, because I really want to do as much as I can to, um, uh, to make sure that once the submission goes in, it's a done deal. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, uh, that's really helpful. I, I, having been a part of, of several pre-submissions, you know, again, FDA does have a guidance document that we've talked about a, a, a little bit here today. And again, I'll make a reference to that in the text that accompanies this podcast. But, uh, you know, that, it, that pre-sub guidance does, for the most part, kind of dictate what the contents of a pre-submission would be. So it's probably helpful to talk a little bit about that and and not necessarily go through bullet point by bullet point what, what's in that, but the overall context, right? And and I think sometimes when we look at things like 510K contents and checklists and we look at pre-submission contents and checklists, sometimes we get into this, this um, mindset that really what we're just trying to, to check the right boxes for the FDA, but that's not really the intent at all, right? That's exactly right, John. And actually, uh, you made a statement a moment ago that the pre-sub guidance uh, essentially dictates the, the content. Uh, with all due respect, I would disagree. The, one of the main differences between the pre-sub process uh, and an actual submission, 510K or PMA, is that the content of the pre-sub is totally 100% up to us, up to the company, to the manufacturer, to the sponsor, not to the FDA. It is our meeting. We determine the agenda. We say to FDA, we want to talk about the following things. And by the way, speaking of the agenda, I use the agenda very strategically. I don't just simply say what I'm going to talk about. I also will include what I do not plan to talk about. Because in order to achieve a successful pre-sub meeting, and my definition of a successful meeting is one where everybody, including my friends from the FDA, walk out of the room agreeing, agreeing with us. In order to achieve that, I want to keep this meeting as small and as focused as I can. Mm -hmm. I'll share with you a very recent example. Just a few weeks ago, I was involved with a company who brought me into the game very, very late. Uh, sort of in the uh, the bottom of the ninth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They were they were going to the FDA with a pre-sub in about uh, two weeks after uh, starting working with me. Long story short, they had 18 objectives going into this. Holy cow! And between the people attending from the company and the FDA, there were nearly 50 people in the room. Wow. Was this a face-to-face? This was a face-to-face. Wow. And I said to the company before the meeting occurred, I said, this is going to be a disaster. Uh Uh-huh. Train wreck. And they said, oh, we're going to do it, blah, blah, blah. Did you take popcorn? To enjoy the show. (laughs) Ironically, John, I had a previous commitment. I was at the FDA at another pre-sub meeting at exactly the same time. So I was not able to physically attend, but I told them this was going to be a disaster. And they said, okay, well, we're going to do it anyway, blah, blah, blah. Long (laughs) story short, I got that same evening, I got two or three emails from people from the company who who said, Mike, you were right. We should have listened to you. We're actually in a worse position now for the meeting. Uh, 
because they confuse they, they cause so much confusion they really yeah. did not give it a book which i probably shouldn't say this in a recorded po- podcast john but quite frankly it was a very good thing for me because now i'm gonna have to do a heck of a lot more work <laughs> for them in order to get them out of this great big hole that they dug for themselves well i mean the reality mike both you and i uh have plenty of examples that we can point to but the reality is that we would rather the the companies that we work with and advise that they take the simplest path forward. And as you just alluded to with that example, that doesn't, isn't always the case. Sometimes companies have their own agendas and their own ideas and, and, you know, why trust the guy that's been dealing with regulatory issues in the industry for 20, 25 years, you know, I'm just going to do it myself. That's exactly know? right. So, to, so, so I know we're, we're coming short on time. So just to wrap up the, uh, the, yeah. the, the last thread, my suggestion here, I like to have, uh, no more than three, at most four objectives yeah. going into a meeting. Right. And I like to have no more than three or four, maybe five people from the company mm-hmm. and three or four or five people from the FDA. Sure. Uh, I think that is, at least in my experience, the, the optimal configuration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will use the agenda, for example, if I'm going to the FDA with an early uh uh, with a device that's still under development, and we are not planning on discussing about discussing usability, for example, I will say in the agenda, although usability is certainly important, we will not we do not plan on discussing that here because I want FDA to know that they don't need to invite a usability testing at least to the person at least right. to this particular meeting. So right. we can use agendas. You know, most people think an agenda is just a no brainer; it's just a bullet list that sure. we're going to talk about. But we can use it in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing I want to leave your audience with uh, as we wrap our wrap up this conversation of the uh, the pre sub process uh, is, is is a couple of quick takeaways. First of all, don't sure. treat the FDA as your obstacle. I see too many people in our industry who just view the FDA as an enemy. But Mike, you, Mike, I can't get I can't go to market unless the FDA gives me permission. I mean, how can I not view them as an obstacle? Well. I personally, I view them as a partner in order to help make sure that I bring to the market the safest and most effective product that, uh, that that we can. Perhaps I'm a bit naive. I don't know, but but that's the way I view it. I sure. I just think that you reap what you sow. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good you know kind of change of perspective. Uh, you know, don't think of FDA as getting in your way. Think of FDA more as an enabler, someone exactly. who can help you. And one and one of my friends, I can't take credit for this myself, but one of my friends who used to be a senior reviewer at the agency was fond of saying that physicians can kill patients one at a time, mm-hmm. but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. Yeah. And quite frankly, that's something that more people in our industry need to remember. Well, and I think the pressure on an FDA reviewer is intense. I mean, I had a chance to talk to a former review, <laughs> reviewer a few days ago, and we talked about that very same thing. And, and she relayed that when she was in that seat, yeah, she felt an awesome responsibility uh, one that if she made the wrong decision, it could have a huge impact on life. Absolutely right. And another quick example, um, I like to compare the FDA and the CIA in the sense that when uh, when they do, when they do their uh, sorry when they do their job, nobody knows about it. When they don't do their job, everybody knows about yeah, it. Yeah, it's evening news. So uh, so that's that's one takeaway. Another sure. takeaway is to. Uh, 
uh, don't just bring regulatory folks, bring engineers. Again, I know we have a sure. lot of engineers in the audience. Bring engineers to your meeting with the FDA. Uh, you might have to manage them a little bit in terms of you know what they say or whatever, but that's a solvable problem. Sure. Uh, we talked earlier about how it's never too soon to talk to FDA. Go as soon as, you're, as you can, but make sure that you're prepared. Mm-hmm. Most importantly, and this is this has become my regulatory mantra: is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. It amazes me uh, how many people I see, and as you know, in my background, John, I work not just with companies, but yeah. as a consultant for the FDA, so I see this from both sides. It's amazing to me how many people I see walk into the FDA and literally ask them, "What do I do? How do I bring my medical device onto the market?" Right. That has disaster written all over it in every language for several reasons. I'll just mention two. First is, it's not FDA's job to tell us what mm-hmm. to do. It's our job as scientists and engineers to figure out what to do and then to go to the FDA and sell it to them. But the other and most important reason why uh, it's not a good strategy to ask FDA what to do is because when you do that, you're opening up a Pandora's box. And quite frankly, you have no idea what you're going to get in return. So on one hand, there's no bigger fan of communication with FDA than I am. Uh, But there's a caveat to that. And that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Absolutely. And, you know, those those tidbits are important not only for pre-submissions, but for anything else that you're doing in this space, for sure. So, Mike, you know, I'm guessing you're happy to talk to people about questions that may come up on the pre-submission. And uh, if so, I'll steer people toward your LinkedIn page, Mike Drew, D-R-U-E-S, Vascular Sciences. You can also find him there. And again, Mike is a guy that... uh, I don't know if he invented the pre-submission process, but I'm, I'm quite sure he's he's probably perfected it in more ways than one. So he's he's a great resource to chat with about questions that you might have about the topic. But John, I do also have a lot of scars and a lot of scars <laughs> in my back as well. Yeah, so. uh, yeah, but and but, I would be more than happy to talk to anybody in your audience. Actually, sure. I would provide the same advice as we just talked about. Of course, uh, not to be self-serving at all. Right. But the sooner that companies contact uh, somebody like you or somebody like me, uh, quite frankly, the uh, the simpler and the easier, the faster, and oftentimes the the uh, the cheaper it yeah. will be to help them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, spend an hour or two with Mike or an hour or two with me, and and we'll, we'll certainly do our best to to leverage our years of experiences. And I mean, let's be frank, Mike, you get to see all sorts of different things from all sorts of different perspectives all the time. So uh, you have a lot more, uh, I guess, visibility or data points, so to speak. So le- people should leverage those those types of experiences. But Mike, Thanks again for being the guest on today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. And just to let the audience know, of course, you can check out Greenlight.Guru. We have an awesome software platform to help you manage your quality management system. Uh, We've optimized workflows around design controls. We've optimized a workflow around risk management. And oh, yeah, it meets ISO 14971 in the process. Not many maybe any other software solutions can say that in the medical device industry. So thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast.